In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. Noah's Ark by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah and Mahdi. This is an audiobook recorded for the Review of Religions. The Review of Religions magazine was established in 1902 by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi, in order to prove the existence of God and the relevance of religion in the modern world and continues to engage audiences across the world to this day. You can find a range of audiobooks and other exciting resources on our website at www.reviewofreligions.org. Noah's Ark, an invitation to faith by the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, Introduction From 1896 to 1914, the plague ravaged British India, and more particularly the province of Punjab. During these perilous times, as towns and cities were devoured, the British government undertook efforts to save the people from this pandemic through inoculation, it was in this backdrop that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Ghadian penned Noah's Ark in 1902. In it, the author elaborates the essence of his teachings and states that those who sincerely follow its tenets would be saved miraculously from the onslaughts of this epidemic, even without inoculation. This was a prophecy vouchsafed to him by God, History testifies to the magnificent fulfillment of this prophecy. The book Noah's Ark shines as a beacon of hope not only for the people of the past, but also now and shall continue to grant salvation to the world in all ages. It is a book that stands as one of the most influential works of the promised Messiah and Mahdi and continues to transform lives even today. The Treatise Noah's Ark, or The Revival of Faith. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Nahmuduhu wa Nusalli ala Rasulihil Kareem. The Plague Vaccine. Lain yusibana illa ma kataballahu lana, huwa maulana wa ala Allahi fal yatawakkalil mu'minun. Part 10, Ruku 13. Translation. Surely nothing shall befall us save that which God has decreed for us. He is our Lord and our Master, and only in Him should the believers put their trust. Gratitude is due to the eminent British government, who, showing kindness to its subjects, has once again advised inoculation against the plague, and has undertaken the expenditure of hundreds of thousands of rupees for the welfare of the servants of God. In truth, it is the duty of wise subjects to welcome this undertaking with gratefulness. Anyone who views the inoculation with mistrust is immensely foolish and is his own enemy. For it has been observed time and again that this cautious government is averse to administering any harmful treatment and prescribes only remedies that have been thoroughly tested and proven to be effective. It is against the norms of honesty and civility to attribute ulterior motives 
to a government which has and continues to spend hundreds and thousands of rupees and resources out of genuine sympathy for its subjects. Unfortunate are the subjects who reach such a degree of mistrust. There can be no doubt that until now, inoculation is by far the best physical remedy that the government has found. And there is no denying that this remedy has proven to be effective. It is the duty of all subjects to make use of the means that are available to them so that they may relieve the government of the pain it feels for them. This, notwithstanding, we must say to this kind government with all due respect that had there not been a heavenly prohibition for us, we would have been the first among its subjects to be inoculated. The heavenly prohibition is that God in this age desires to show a heavenly sign of his mercy to mankind. Addressing me, he said, You and those who dwell within the four walls of your house, those who unconditionally follow you and are obedient to you, and who on account of true righteousness have become devoted to you, shall all be safeguarded against the plague. This will be a sign of God in the latter days, so that he might demonstrate a distinction between people. But those who do not follow you completely are not of you. Be not anxious on their account. This is a divine directive on account of which I myself and all those who dwell within the four walls of my house have no need to be inoculated. For as I have mentioned, God, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, and beyond whose knowledge and power there is nothing, revealed to me long ago that he would save everyone who lives inside the four walls of this house from death by the plague, provided he gives up all antagonism and enters into the allegiance of birth, in all sincerity, submission and humility. He must not be arrogant, willful, proud, heedless or vain towards God's commands and his appointed one, and his conduct ought to be in conformity with my teachings. He has also told me that Gardian will be saved from such ravages of the plague that cause people to die like dogs and become mad with grief and confusion, and that generally the members of this community, however large in number, will be safe against the plague as compared to my opponents. However, such of my followers may fall prey to the plague who do not fully abide by their pledge, or concerning whom there is some hidden reason in the knowledge of God. But in the end, people will marvel and acknowledge that by relative comparison the support of God is with these people, and that he has saved them through his special mercy in a way that has no precedence. Certain uninformed people will be startled to hear this. Others will laugh, while others will denounce me as mad. And still others will wonder if such a God really exists who can send down his mercy without resorting to physical means. The answer is yes. Such a powerful God does indeed exist. And if he was not so, those who are close to him would have died a living death. He is wonderfully omnipotent and marvellous are his holy powers. While on the one hand he allows ignorant opponents to attack his friends like dogs, 
On the other hand, he commands the angels to serve them. In the same way, when his wrath comes upon the world and his anger surges against the wrongdoers, God watches over and protects his chosen ones. Were it not so, the entire mission of the people of God would end in disarray and no one would be able to recognize them. His powers are infinite, but they are revealed to people in proportion to their belief. Those who are blessed with certainty and love and sever all ties for him and have broken free from selfish habits, it is for their sake that miracles are shown. God does what he wills, but he chooses to demonstrate his miraculous powers only to those who break from their ill habits for his sake. In this day and age, there are very few people who know him and believe in his extraordinary powers. On the contrary, there are many who have no belief whatsoever in this all-powerful God, whose voice is heard by everything and for whom nothing is impossible. At this instance, let it be remembered that to seek treatment for the plague or other diseases is not a sin. In fact, it is recorded in a hadith that there is no disease for which God has not created a remedy. However, I consider it a sin to throw doubt on this sign by recourse to inoculation, for it is a sign which God, for our sake, wishes to demonstrate clearly in the world. I dare not demean his true sign and his true promise by resorting to inoculation. If I did, I would be accountable for the sin of not believing in the promise that God has given me. If I were to benefit from inoculation, then I should be grateful to the doctor who invented the vaccine and not to God who promised me that he would protect everyone dwelling in this house. I proclaim by way of insight that the promises of the omnipotent God are indeed true and I see the coming days as if they have already come. I am also convinced that the principal aim of this eminent government is to protect the people from the plague by any means. In order to be safeguarded from the plague, if the government were to discover a remedy more effective than the vaccine, it would happily adopt it. Clearly, therefore, the path that God has commanded me to follow does not conflict with the objectives of this eminent government. Twenty years ago, a prophecy regarding this great affliction of the plague was recorded in my book, Barahina Ahmadiyya, and it was also promised therein that my community would be greatly blessed. See Barahina Ahmadiyya, pages 518 and 519. In addition to this, God Almighty has emphatically declared that he will deliver from the affliction of the plague those sincere inhabitants of my house who are not arrogant before him and his appointed one. In relative comparison to others, God will grant this community a special favor. It is possible that there may be the odd case in my community due to a weakness of faith or a lack of action or death at its appointed time, or on account of other causes which are known to God. However, rare instances as these cannot constitute the general rule. Whenever a comparison is made, the majority is given precedence. 
the government has itself found after investigation that those who make use of the plague vaccine have a lower fatality rate than those who do not. Therefore, just as the occasional death does not diminish the value of the vaccination, similarly, if there are occasional instances of the plague in Gardian, or a few members of this community die from the disease, the grandeur of this sign will not diminish. This prophecy has been recorded in accordance with the undefiled word of God. It does not befit an intelligent person to mock heavenly decree impetuously, for it is the word of God and not the utterances of a soothsayer. It comes forth from a vista of light, not from the darkness of conjecture. These are the words of he who has raised the plague and who has the power to eradicate it. Our government will invariably give credence to this prophecy once it witnesses the wonder that the people of our community will remain safe and sound from the plague in much greater numbers than the vaccinated. I say with true conviction that if this prophecy is not fulfilled exactly as it has been publicized for over the last 20 to 22 years, then I am not from God. As a sign that I am from Allah, the sincere people who live in the four walls of my home shall be protected from death by this disease. And in comparison to others, my entire community will be saved from the onslaught of the plague. The security enjoyed by my community will not be shared by other people. Gardian will be saved from such an outbreak of the plague, which causes utter destruction, except in the rarest of circumstances. Alas, if only the people possessed pure hearts and feared God, they would be saved completely. For calamities are not sent upon anyone in the world because of theological differences. Such matters will be decided in the hereafter. In reality, the world is afflicted by chastisement because of the spread of evil, pride and rampant sin. Let it also be borne in mind that both the Holy Quran and even certain books of the Torah foretell that plague will break out in the time of the promised Messiah. Footnote 1. The occurrence of the plague in the time of the promised Messiah is recorded in the following books of the Bible. Zechariah 14.12, the Gospel of Matthew 24.8 and Revelations 22.8. End of footnote. In fact, the Messiah, peace be upon him, also spoke of this in the Gospel. It is impossible for the prophecies of the messengers to be revoked. It should also be kept in mind that on account of this divine promise, it is necessary for me to eschew any human contingencies, lest our enemies attribute this divine sign to other agencies. However, in addition to this, should God Almighty himself disclose any other means or remedy to me through his word, then such means or remedy would not contravene this sign, for they emanate from God who has manifested this sign. No one should labor under the illusion that if a rare death occurs on account of the plague within my community, this would vitiate the greatness and stature of this sign. 
in old times, Moses and Joshua, and ultimately our prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, were commanded to slay with the sword those who first raised the sword against them and who shed the blood of hundreds. Furthermore, this was a sign from the prophets after which a grand victory was achieved. Yet, despite this, in the field of battle, the truthful too were slain by the swords of the wrongdoers, but very few. Such a loss was not significant enough to spoil the grandeur of this sign. Accordingly, if on the rare occasion some members from among my community were to contract the plague, owing to the reasons already specified, their affliction shall in no way diminish this divine sign. Is it not a magnificent sign that I repeatedly declare that God Almighty will manifest this prophecy as to leave no one who seeks the truth in any doubt concerning it? and that every such person will surely recognize that God has miraculously protected this community? Indeed, as a result of this divine sign, the plague will cause this community to grow manifold and enjoy a level of success so unprecedented that it will be heralded with great astonishment. If God does not manifest some distinction between this community and others according to the prophecy, then the opponents, who have hitherto suffered one defeat after another, as I have written in my book, Nuzul al-Masih, will be justified in proclaiming me a liar. Thus far, they have only managed to heap a curse upon themselves by rejecting me. For example, they raised an ongoing hue and cry that Atham had not died within the 15-month period, even though the prophecy was clearly worded that if he returned to the truth, then he will not perish within the 15 months. Footnote Abdullah Atham was a retired civil servant and a prominent Christian polemicist who famously debated with the promised Messiah on the truth of Christianity and Islam. The debate lasted from the 22nd of May to the 5th of June, 1893. End footnote. And it so happened that during the very course of our debate, he recanted from referring to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as the Antichrist before 70 respectable men. Not only this, but in the subsequent 15 months, his silence and fear testified to his contrition. The grounds to this prophecy was that he had referred to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as the Antichrist. And so his repentance benefited him only to the extent that he did not die within 15 months, but he did ultimately perish. This was because the prophecy stated that whosoever out of the two of us was false in his beliefs would be the first to die. Therefore, he passed away before me. Similarly, other matters of the unseen that God has revealed to me, which have come to pass at their appropriate time, number no less than 10,000. By way of example, I have recorded only 150 such signs in my book Nuzul al-Masih, which is to be published, and I have complemented this with supporting evidence and witnesses. All of my prophecies have been fulfilled, or in the case of those prophecies which consist of two parts, 
at least one part has come true so far. Even if a person were to strive all his life in the hope of finding a prophecy that was uttered from my mouth, about which one could assert that it has remained unfulfilled, he will not be able to find a single one. However, out of shamelessness or ignorance, one is free to say whatever he likes. I emphatically declare that thousands of my prophecies, which are clear in nature, have been categorically fulfilled, and hundreds of thousands of people are witness to this. With the exception of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, no similar example can be found from the prophets of the past. If only my enemies had judged me by this criterion, their eyes would have been opened long ago. If they were able to present the like of these prophecies, I would be more than willing to give them a handsome reward. I can only attribute mischievous and ignorant attempts to disprove my prophecies to wretchedness and ill-thinking. They would surely have to retract their assertions if asked to discuss the matter in a gathering that was held to ascertain the truth or else they would have to be called shameless. The fulfillment of thousands of prophecies to the letter, along with thousands of witnesses to attest to their truth who are still alive, is not an insignificant matter. This is akin to showing God, the Lord of honour and glory. Has anyone ever witnessed a time, except for the era of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, when thousands of prophecies were made and the brilliant fulfillment of each and every one of them was testified to by thousands of witnesses? I am quite certain that the manner in which God Almighty now draws near and manifests himself and reveals hundreds of matters of the unseen to his servant is almost unprecedented in past ages. In this age, people will soon witness a manifestation of the countenance of God Almighty, as if he had descended from heaven. He kept himself hidden for a very long time. He was rejected and remained silent, but now he shall conceal himself no longer. And the world will witness manifestations of his power, the likes of which the forefathers never saw. This will come to pass because the earth has been corrupted and people have lost faith in the Creator of the heavens and the earth. They pay lip service to Him, but their hearts are estranged from Him. That is why God has declared that now He will create a new heaven and a new earth. This means that the earth has perished, that is, the hearts of the people of earth have so hardened as if they are dead. The face of God has become hidden from them and heavenly signs of the past were all reduced to myth and legend. Thus, God has decreed to create a new heaven and a new earth. What is this new heaven and what is this new earth? A new earth means those pure hearts that God is preparing with his own hand which will be manifested by him and through whom God will be manifested. A new heaven means those signs which are being shown by his command at the hand of his servant. 
It is a pity, however, that the world has opposed this new manifestation of God. They have nothing in hand but tales. Their God is spawned by their own fancies. Their hearts are crooked. Their resolve is weary, and their eyes are veiled. Other nations have lost the true God themselves, let alone those who have deified the offspring of men. Look at the state of the Muslims. How far detached from God they are! They are bitter opponents of the truth and are like sworn enemies of the path of righteousness. For example, there is the Nadwatul Ulama who claim to represent Islam, or the Anjumane Hamayti Islam Lahore who take the wealth of Muslims in the name of Islam. Are these people well wishers of Islam? Are they supporters of the right path? Are they aware of the tribulations that have smothered Islam, and are they cognizant of the methods of revival employed by God? I truthfully declare that if I had not come, their claims to support Islam might have been acceptable to some extent. But now these people stand accused by God Himself, for despite claiming to be supportive, they were the first to deny the Star of Heaven. When it emerged, now what answer will they give to God, who has sent me precisely at the appointed time? Alas, they are completely heedless. The sun has almost reached its zenith, but by their reckoning, it is still night. God's fountain gushes forth, but they continue to lament in their wastelands. A river of His heavenly knowledge flows before them. But they are completely oblivious to it. His signs continue to become manifest, but they remain utterly unmindful of them. In fact, not only are they unmindful, but they harbour hostility towards the community of God. So these are their efforts for the sake of assisting, propagating, and teaching Islam. However, will the rejection of these people halt the true will of God? Which all the prophets have testified to since the remotest ages? Certainly not. Instead, God's prophecy, "Kataballahu la aghlibana ana wa rasuli," will soon be fulfilled. Footnote: Allah has decreed, "Most surely I will prevail, I and my messengers." Surah Al-Mujadala, chapter fifty-eight, verse twenty-two. End of footnote. Ten years ago today, God testified in favor of His servant by causing the sun and the moon to eclipse in Ramadan. He caused the luminary of day and the luminary of night to bear testimony in my favor, and thus manifested two signs. Similarly, in fulfillment of the prophecies of the prophets, He also showed two earthly signs. Firstly, you read the first of these in the Holy Quran as stated, "Wa'idal isharu uttilat." Footnote: And when the she camels ten month pregnant are abandoned, Surah At-Takwir, chapter eighty-one, verse five. End of footnote. Then in the Hadith, as you read, "Wala yutrakan nalqilasu fala yusa alaiha." Footnote. The she camels shall be abandoned and shall not be used. End of footnote. 
For the fulfillment of this, a railway in the land of Hijaz, i.e. between Mecca and Medina, is being constructed. Number two, the second sign is the plague. As God Almighty says, وَإِمْ مِنْ قَرِيَةٍ إِلَّا نَحْنُ مُحْلِكُوهَا قَبْلَ يَوْمِ الْقَيَامَةِ أَوْ مُعَذِّبُوهَا Footnote There is not a township, but we shall destroy it before the day of resurrection, or punish it. Surah Bani Israel, chapter 17, verse 59. End of footnote. So, God introduced the railway in the land, and also sent the plague so that the heaven and earth may bear witness. So do not war with God, as to war with Him will be sheer folly. In the past, when God decreed to make Adam a Khalifa, the angels put forth their plea. But was God held back by their submission? Now, when He has raised the second Adam, He has declared, Aradtu an astakhlifa fakhalaktu Adam. That is, I decreed to raise a Khalifa, and have thus decided to raise this Adam. Can anyone halt the will of God? So why do you present this worthless conjecture and not tread the path of certainty? Do not put yourself to trial and know for certain that there is no one who can frustrate the will of God. Such disputes are against the path of righteousness. But should anyone be prey to doubt, there is another method. On the basis of God's revelation, I have received glad tidings that the group of individuals who pay heed to my words will be saved from the punishment of the plague, and this has been published. Similarly, other people who possess heartfelt concern for the welfare of their people should also secure the good news from God Almighty that their co-religionists will be protected from the plague. Then they too ought to publish this prophecy so that the public knows that they enjoy God's support. In fact, this too is a wonderful opportunity for the Christians who ever proclaim that salvation lies with the Messiah. Surely, in these days of peril, they too are obliged to deliver their fellow Christians from the plague. So of all these denominations, the one whom God heeds the most will have to be considered as accepted by him. Now, God has given everyone the opportunity to cease unnecessary indulgence in debates on earth and instead show the level of their acceptance so that they can be saved from the plague and their own truth may become evident as well. This is particularly true for the Christian clergy who have declared the Messiah, son of Mary, to be the saviour of the world and the hereafter. If they truly believe the son of Mary to be the Lord of this world and the next, then they are entitled to witness a manifestation of salvation through his atonement. This will also ease the problems of the eminent government. In order to save their people and deliver them from the plague, the various denominations present in British India who consider themselves true in their faith, ought to repair to their God whom they believe in, or any other being whom they deem worthy of worship besides God, and call on him to save these afflicted souls. And they ought to attain a firm promise from their God, 
and publish it in the form of announcements, just as I have published this announcement. Not only is such a course wholly in the interest of all creation, but will also help establish the truth of their particular faith, and shall also provide assistance to the government. What more does the administration desire than the deliverance of its people from the plague by any means possible? Finally, through the publication of this announcement, I wish to make it known to the members of my community, who are spread throughout the Punjab and elsewhere in India, that they are not prohibited from taking the vaccine. Should the government categorically order the vaccine, they ought to duly comply with their directive and have the vaccine administered to them. And it would be appropriate for those who are given a choice in this respect to avail it if they do not fully follow the teachings that have been delivered to them, so that they do not stumble or permit their own miserable state to spawn doubt regarding the promise of God in the minds of others. Below, I briefly expound on the teaching which, if followed precisely, can stave off the onslaught of the plague for anyone who may have an interest to know. Our Teaching let it be clear that to affirm the covenant of Baird with the tongue alone amounts to nothing unless it is practiced with full, heartfelt resolve. Thus, whosoever fully acts upon my teachings enters that house of mine concerning which God Almighty has promised in his word, Inni uhafidhu kulla man fiddar. That is, I shall protect everyone who is within the four walls of your home. This should not be taken to mean only such people who dwell in my house made of brick and mortar. Rather, this also refers to all those who follow me completely and dwell in my spiritual home. To follow me, it is necessary for them to believe that they have an omnipotent, self-sustaining God who is the creator of all things and whose attributes are eternal everlasting and unchangeable. He has no father and no son. He is above suffering, being crucified and killed. He is such that despite being far, he is near, and despite being near, he is far. Despite being one, his manifestations are diverse. For a person who brings about a change in himself, he becomes a new God for him and deals with him by means of a new manifestation. Thus, such a person experiences a change in God, according to the change in himself. Yet no change takes place in God, for he is eternally unchangeable, and possesses complete perfection. But when a person undergoes a transformation, and begins to move towards virtue, God manifests himself to such a person, in a new way. At the time of every improved condition that manifests itself in a person, the manifestation of God Almighty's power also reveals itself to a greater extent. He manifests his might in an extraordinary way, only when an extraordinary change takes place in a person. This is the root of all extraordinary happenings and miracles. The God so described is the fundamental bedrock of my community. Believe in Him and give precedence to Him 
over your own souls and comforts and over all your relationships. Show sincerity and loyalty in his cause by exhibiting courage in your practice. Worldly people do not prefer him over their means and their kith and kin, but you ought to, so that you may be counted in heaven as belonging to his community. It has been the practice of God since the remotest ages to manifest signs of his mercy, but you can partake of it only when nothing separates you from him. His will becomes your will. His desire becomes your desire. And you remain prostrate at his threshold at all times and in all conditions, whether of success or failure, so that he may do whatever he wills. If you do so, then God, who has for so long kept his countenance hidden, will manifest himself in you. Is there anyone from among you who will implement this and seek his pleasure without being dissatisfied by his will and decree? So when you encounter misfortune, you should step forth even more eagerly, for this is the means of your success. Exert all your power to spread the oneness of God on earth. Show mercy to his servants, and do not wrong them by your tongue or your hand or by any other means, and strive for the welfare of God's creation. Behave not arrogantly towards anyone, even if he is your subordinate, and revile not anyone, even if he should revile you. Become humble, tolerant, well-intentioned and compassionate towards God's creation, so that you may be accepted by God. There are many who show meekness, but they are wolves from within. There are many who outwardly appear clean, but from within they are serpents. You, therefore, cannot be accepted by God unless you are the same inside and out. If you are above others, have mercy on the lowly and do not look down upon them. If you are learned, counsel the ignorant and do not degrade them with disdain. If you are wealthy, serve the poor and do not treat them with arrogance and self-conceit. Dread the ways of ruin and always be fearful of God. Adopt righteousness and worship not his creation. Cut asunder from everything to turn to your master. Turn your hearts away from the world and become wholly his. Live for him alone, and for his sake hate every impiety and sin, for he is holy. Let every morning bear witness that you have spent the night in righteousness, and let every evening bear witness that you have spent the day with the fear of God. Be not afraid of the curses of the world, for they shall vanish before your eyes like smoke and cannot turn day into night. Fear instead the curse of God, which descends from heaven and uproots its victims in both worlds. You cannot save yourselves with hypocrisy, for your God is he who sees the innermost depth of man. Can you deceive him? So become straightforward, clean, pure and truthful. If even a particle of darkness is left within you, it will dispel all your light. 
and if you possess even the slightest arrogance, hypocrisy, self-conceit or sloth, you are not worthy of being accepted. Be careful lest a few accomplishments delude you to think that you have sufficiently fulfilled your purpose, for God desires a complete transformation in your being, and he demands from you a death whereafter he should revive you. Hasten to make peace with one another and forgive your brethren their sins. For he who is not inclined to make peace with his brother is wicked and will be cut off, because he is the cause of dissension. Part with your ego in every way and do away with mutual grievances. Be humble like the guilty, though truth be on your side, so that you may be forgiven. Do not feed your vanity, for those who are bloated cannot enter the gate to which you have been called. How unfortunate is the one who does not believe in that which has come from the mouth of God and which I have set forth. If you desire that God should be pleased with you in heaven, unite with one another as though you were brothers from the same womb. The one who most forgives the transgressions of his brother is the more honorable among you. Unfortunate is the one who is obstinate and does not forgive. Such a person has no part in me. Be very fearful of God's curse, for he is holy and jealous. An evildoer cannot attain nearness to God. One who is arrogant cannot attain nearness to God. A wrongdoer cannot attain nearness to God. He who is unfaithful cannot attain nearness to God. Every such person who is not jealously protective for the sake of God's name cannot attain his nearness. Those who fall upon the world like dogs, ants and vultures and find their comfort in the world cannot attain nearness to God. Every impure eye is far from him. Every impure heart is unaware of him. He who burns for his sake will be delivered from the fire. He who weeps for his sake will laugh. And he who cuts asunder from the world for his sake will find him. Befriend God with a true heart, full sincerity and complete eagerness, so that he too may befriend you. Have mercy on your subordinates and your wives and your less fortunate brethren, so that you too may be shown mercy in heaven. Become truly his, so that he too may become yours. The world is home to a thousand evils, one of which is also the plague. So hold fast to God with sincerity, so that he should safeguard you against all calamities. No calamity visits the earth until there is a command from heaven, and no affliction is alleviated until mercy descends from heaven. So, you would be wise to take hold of the root rather than the branch. You are not prohibited from having recourse to the necessary means and appropriate remedies, but you are forbidden to rely upon them. Ultimately, the will of God will prevail. Complete trust in God, if one has the strength for it, is greater than all else. 
An essential teaching for you is that you should not abandon the Holy Quran like a thing forsaken, for therein lies your life. Those who honor the Quran will be honored in heaven. Those who give precedence to the Quran over every hadith and every other saying will be given precedence in heaven. Today, there is no book on the face of the earth for mankind except for the Quran. The sons of Adam have no messenger and intercessor but Muhammad, the chosen one. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Endeavor, therefore, to cultivate true love for this prophet of glory and majesty and do not give precedence to anyone over him so that in heaven you may be counted as those who have attained salvation. Remember, salvation is not something that will be manifested after death. On the contrary, true salvation exhibits its light in this very world. Who is the one who attains salvation? Such a person is he who believes that God is true and that Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is the intercessor between God and all his creation and that under the heaven there is no messenger equal in rank to him, nor is there any book equal in status to the Qur'an. God did not desire that anyone should remain alive eternally, but this chosen prophet lives forever. To keep him alive forever, God has ordained that his spiritual and law-giving blessings would last until the day of resurrection. Finally, as a continuation of his spiritual blessings, God has sent unto the world the promised Messiah, whose advent was essential for the completion of the edifice of Islam. It was necessary that the world should not come to an end until the dispensation of Muhammad had been granted a spiritual Messiah, as had been endowed to the Mosaic dispensation. This is indicated in the verse, Footnote Guide us in the right path, the path of those on whom thou hast bestowed thy blessings. Surah Al Fatiha, Chapter 1, Verses 6 and 7. End of footnote. Moses was bestowed a treasure which earlier generations had lost. And Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was bestowed the riches which the dispensation of Moses lost. Now, the dispensation of Muhammad has replaced the Mosaic dispensation, but it is thousands of times higher in status. The one sent in the likeness of Moses is greater than Moses, and the one sent in the likeness of the son of Mary is more exalted than the son of Mary. Just as the Messiah son of Mary came in the 14th century after Moses, the promised Messiah appeared in the 4th century after the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And he appeared at the time when the condition of the Muslims was similar to that of the Jews at the time of the advent of the Messiah son of Mary. Footnote The Jews unanimously believe in accordance with their history that Jesus appeared at the head of the 14th century after Moses. See Jewish history. End of footnote. I am that Messiah. God does what he wills. 
Foolish is the person who wars with him, and ignorant is the one who objects to his works, and considers that they should have been otherwise. He has sent me with over ten thousand brilliant signs, one of which is the plague. So, in these calamitous times, my soul shall intercede only for such a person who sincerely enters my allegiance of birth, and wholeheartedly follows me and submerges themselves in obedience to me, to the extent that they relinquish their own will. O ye people who consider yourselves members of my community, you will be counted as such in heaven when you truly tread upon the ways of righteousness. So, offer the five daily prayers in such fear and with such complete attention as though you were actually beholding God Almighty. Sincerely observe your fasts for the sake of God. Let everyone who is liable to pay the zakat do so, and anyone upon whom the Hajj has become obligatory and who face no hindrance ought to perform the pilgrimage. Do good in a handsome manner and discard vice with disgust. Bear well in mind that no action of yours which is empty of righteousness can reach God. Righteousness is the root of all goodness. No action that is rooted in righteousness will go in vain. It is inevitable that you should also be tried with various forms of anguish and misfortune just as the faithful before you were tried. Be on your guard, lest you should falter. So long as you have a firm relationship with heaven, the earth can do you no harm. Whenever harm befalls you, it will be from your own hands and not from the hands of your enemy. Even if you lose all honor on earth, God will bestow eternal honor upon you in heaven. So do not forsake him. You will certainly suffer pain and many of your desires will not be fulfilled. But do not lose heart in such situations. For your God tries you to see whether you are steadfast in his path or not. If you desire that even the angels should praise you in heaven, then endure beating and remain joyful. Hear abuse and be grateful. Suffer setbacks but do not sever your relationship with God. You are the last community of God, so practice virtue at its best. Any one of you who becomes slothful will be cast out of the community like a foul thing and will die in regret and will be able to do no harm to God. I gladly inform you that your God truly exists. Though all are his creation, but he chooses the one who chooses him. He comes to the one who goes to him. He bestows honor upon him who honors him. Approach God with sincere hearts and pure tongues, eyes and ears, for he will then accept you. What God requires of you in the matter of belief is that God is one and that Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is his prophet and Khatamul Anbiya, the seal of prophets, and that he is the greatest of them all. After him there is no prophet except one who is cloaked in the mantle of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam by way of reflection 
For a servant cannot be separated from his master, nor is a branch separable from its root. Thus, one who completely annihilates himself for his master is bestowed with the title of Nabi, Prophet, by God. Such a one does not break the seal of prophethood. When you look into a mirror, although there seems to be two, in reality there is only one. The distinction exists between that which is real and its reflection. Such is the will of God with respect to the promised Messiah. This is also the secret behind the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he stated, The promised Messiah would be buried in my grave, meaning he and I are the same and completely identical. Know for certain that Jesus, son of Mary, has died. His grave is in Mohalla Khanyar, Srinagar, Kashmir. Footnote Christian researchers have also expressed this view. See Supernatural Religion, page 522. For further information, consult page 139 of my book, Tofa Golwariya. End of footnote God Almighty Himself has spoken of His demise in His beloved book. For if the following verse cited below has some other implication, then where else has the death of Jesus, son of Mary, been mentioned in the Qur'an? If the verses regarding his death mean something else, as our opponents believe, then this would suggest that the Qur'an has nowhere addressed the issue of his death and whether he would ever pass away. God has spoken of the death of our Prophet but in the whole of the Qur'an, he has nowhere mentioned the death of Jesus. What is the secret behind this? If the verse, فَلَمَّا تَوَفَيْتَنِي كُنْتَ أَنْتَ رَقِيبَ عَلَيْهِمْ informs us of the death of Jesus, the clear implication of this verse is that he died before the Christians transgressed. Footnote It is evident from this verse that Jesus, peace be upon him, will not reappear in the world. For if he was to return to the world again, in such a case it would be a mere lie for Jesus to respond by saying that he knew nothing of the decline of the Christians. Now, as for such a person who returns to the world for a second time, lives for forty years, witnesses tens of millions of Christians deify him, breaks the cross and converts all of the Christians to Islam, how could he stand before his Lord on the day of resurrection and claim ignorance of the decline of the Christians? End of footnote. And if the verse فَلَمَّا suggests that Jesus was lifted to heaven alive with his physical body, then why did God not mention in the Qur'an of the eventual death of a figure whose life has led hundreds of thousands of people astray? It is as if God conferred on him eternal life, so that people may fall prey to idol worship and lose their faith. And it would seem as if the people have not erred, but it is God who has done all this to lead them astray. Remember, the religion of the cross cannot die unless the Messiah is allowed to pass away. After all, what benefit is there in considering him alive in contradiction to the teaching of the Qur'an? Let him die so that this faith, Islam, may live again. God manifested the death of the Messiah through his word. And on the night of the Miraj, 
the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, saw him dwelling among the dead. Footnote Miraj here refers to the spiritual ascension of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him. End footnote And yet you still do not believe in his death. What manner of faith is this? Do you prefer the tales of men over the word of God? What kind of religion is this? Footnote There is a verse in the Holy Quran which clearly indicates that the Messiah and his mother travelled to Kashmir after the incident of the crucifixion. It says, That we gave Jesus and his mother shelter on an elevated land which was a place of comfort and was provided with springs of clear water. Here, God Almighty has depicted an illustration of Kashmir. According to the Arabic lexicon, the word Ava is used to grant refuge against calamity or misfortune. And before the crucifixion, Jesus and his mother underwent no period of hardship as would require refuge. It is thus established that it was only after the incident of the crucifixion that God Almighty led Jesus and his mother to this elevated land. End footnote. Not only did our messenger, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, testify that he had seen Jesus among the souls of the dead, but even by his own death, the Prophet demonstrated that none of the prophets who came before him were still alive. But... Just as our opponents have abandoned the Qur'an, they have also renounced the Sunnah, for death is a part of the Sunnah of our Prophet. If Jesus was still alive, then death would be a dishonor to our Messenger. For as long as you do not believe in the death of Jesus, you will stand in defiance of both the Qur'an and Sunnah. I do not deny the greatness of Jesus, peace be upon him, despite the fact that I have been informed by God that the Messiah of Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, occupies a higher status than the Messiah of Moses. Nevertheless, I hold the Messiah, son of Mary, in high esteem, inasmuch as I am spiritually the Khatam al the seed of the caliphs in Islam, just as the Messiah, son of Mary, was the Khatam al of the Israelite dispensation. The son of Mary was the promised Messiah of the Mosaic dispensation, and I am the promised Messiah of the dispensation of Muhammad So I honor greatly the one whose name I bear. Anyone who asserts that I do not revere the Messiah, son of Mary, is mischievous and a liar. I honor not only the Messiah, but also his four brothers, as all five of them were sons of the same mother. Footnote Christ the Messiah had four brothers and two sisters who were related to Christ by blood and were the children of Joseph and Mary. The names of his four brothers are Judas, James, Simon and Joseph. The names of his two sisters are Asiya and Lydia. See Apostolic Records by Father John Allen Giles, London, 1886, pages 159 and 166. End footnote. I also regard his two biological sisters as pious, for they are all from the womb of the Holy Virgin Mary. Mary's greatness lies in the fact that she abstained from marriage for quite a time, 
and eventually yielded only due to the insistence of her elders during pregnancy. Certain people object that Mary married during her pregnancy, which is against the teachings of the Torah. In this way, she wrongfully broke her covenant of remaining a virgin and also opened the door to polygamy. Since Mary agreed to enter into matrimony with Joseph the carpenter, though he was already married at the time, however, I say that these were compelling circumstances which happened to arise, and for this reason both ought to be looked upon with mercy rather than disdain. I repeat that you should not be content with having made a superficial covenant of bed, for this amounts to nothing. God looks at your hearts and will deal with you accordingly. Look here, I discharge the obligation of conveying my message by telling you that sin is a poison. Do not consume it. Disobedience to God is a filthy death. Safeguard yourselves against it. Supplicate so that you might be granted strength. He who at the time of supplication does not believe that God has power over all things, except that which might be contrary to His promise, is not of my community. Whosoever does not give up lying and deceit is not of my community. Whosoever is consumed by material greed and does not lift his eyes to look at the hereafter is not of my community. Whosoever does not truly give precedence to religion over the world is not of my community. Whosoever does not repent of every vice and every evil deed, such as drunkenness, gambling, lustful glances, deceit, bribery, and every misappropriation, is not of my community. Whosoever does not observe the five daily prayers is not of my community. Whosoever is not constant in supplication and does not remember God with humility is not of my community. Whosoever does not discard the company of an evil one who influences him towards vice is not of my community. Whosoever does not honor his parents and does not obey them in all matters that are not contrary to the Quran and is careless in serving them diligently is not of my community. Whosoever does not treat his wife and her relatives with gentleness and benevolence is not of my community. He who refrains from doing even the least bit of good to his neighbor is not of my community. He who does not desire to forgive an offender and harbors rancor is not of my community. Every husband who deceives his wife and every wife who deceives her husband is not of my community. Whosoever breaks the covenant of birth in any respect is not of my community. He who does not truly believe in me as the promised Messiah and awaited Mahdi is not of my community. Whosoever is unwilling to obey me in all that is good is not of my community. Whosoever associates with my opponents and endorses what they say is not of my community. Every adulterer, transgressor, drunkard, murderer, thief, gambler, deceiver, bribe-taker, usurper, tyrant, liar, forger, and those who sit amongst them, and everyone who slanders his brothers or sisters and does not repent of his foul deeds and does not abstain from evil company is not of my community.
all these are poisons. You cannot consume this poison and survive. Light and darkness cannot exist together. Everyone who possesses a crooked disposition and is not straightforward with God can never achieve the blessing that is bestowed on the pure-hearted. How fortunate are those who cleanse their hearts and purify them of every impurity and swear an oath of loyalty to their God, for they will never be destroyed. It is not possible that God should humiliate them, for they are God's and God is theirs. They will be safeguarded at the time of every calamity. Foolish is the enemy who moves against them, for they are in the lap of God and enjoy his support. Who is it that believes in God? Only those who are such as we have just described. Similarly, foolish is he who is inclined towards a fearless sinner, or one who is evil-minded and vicious, for he will destroy himself. Ever since God has created the heaven and earth, it has never happened that he should have ruined or destroyed or obliterated the righteous. On the contrary, he has always shown wonders in their favor and will also show them now. God is most faithful and he manifests wondrous works for those who are loyal to him. The world desires to devour them and every enemy grinds their teeth at them. But he who is their friend delivers them from every place of danger and bestows victory upon them in every field. How fortunate is the person who never lets go the mantle of God. We have believed in him and we have recognized him. The God of the whole world is he who has sent down his revelation to me who has shown mighty signs in my support, and who has sent me as the promised Messiah in this age. There is no God beside him, neither in heaven nor on earth. He who does not believe in him is bereft of all good fortune, and is ensnared in disgrace. The revelation I have received from God is as bright as the sun, I have seen that he alone is the Lord of the world and that there is none other than him. Truly omnipotent and all-sustaining is the God whom we have found. How great are his powers of him who we have witnessed. The truth is that nothing is beyond him except which is contrary to his book and his promise. So when you pray, do not be like ignorant naturalists who have in their own fancy devised a natural law which does not bear the seal of God's book. They are the rejected and their prayers will not be accepted. They are blind, not of those who see. They are dead, not of those who are alive. They present to God their self-devised law and presume to limit his infinite powers and deem him weak, so they shall be dealt with according to their condition. When you stand up in prayer, it is necessary for you to have firm faith that your God has power over all things. 
only then will your prayer be accepted and you will behold the wonders of God's power that we have beheld. Our testimony is based on observation and not on hearsay. How should the supplication of a person be accepted and how should he have the courage to pray at times of great difficulty when according to him he is opposed by the law of nature unless he believes that God has a power over everything? O fortunate ones, follow not these practices. Your God is one who holds aloft innumerable stars without the use of columns and who has created heaven and earth from nothing. Then would you think so ill of him as to imagine that your objective is beyond his power? Footnote God is incapable of nothing. Nonetheless, with regards to prayer, the book of God sets out the principle that he deals with pious people most mercifully like a friend. At times, he overlooks his own will in order to accept their prayer, as he says himself, that pray unto me, I will answer your prayer. Surah Al-Mu'min, chapter 40, verse 61. However, at times, God desires that his own will be done, as he says, that and we will try you with something of fear and hunger. Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 156. Thus, on occasion, God deals with a person according to the supplicant's prayer, because he wishes to enhance their certainty and enlightenment. And on other occasions, he carries out his own will, so that he may confer upon man the robe of his pleasure, to raise his station and to enable him to advance on the path of guidance by his love. End footnote. Such ill thinking will frustrate you. Our God possesses countless wonders, but they are visible only to those who become his out of sincerity and loyalty. He does not disclose his wonders to those who do not believe in his power and who are not sincere and loyal to him. How unfortunate is the man who even now is unaware that there is a God who has power over all things. Our paradise lies in our God. Our highest delight is in our God. For we have seen him and found every beauty in him. This wealth is worth procuring though one might have to lay down one's life to procure it. This ruby is worth purchasing, though one may have to lose oneself to acquire it. O ye who are deprived, hasten to this fountain, for it will satiate you. It is this fountain of life that will save you. What am I to do? How shall I impress the hearts with this good news? What sort of a drum am I to beat in the streets in order to make the announcement that this is your God, so that people might hear? What remedy shall I apply to the ears of the people so that they should listen? If you become one with God, rest assured that God too will be yours. God Almighty shall remain awake for you as you sleep. God shall watch over your enemy and frustrate their designs while you are unmindful of him. 
you still do not know the extent of God's powers. Had you known, not a single day would you have grieved over the world. Does he who owns a treasure weep, cry, and become sorrowful unto death over the loss of a single coin? Had you been aware of this treasure and knew that at every time of need, God is able to fulfill your requirements, why would you look to the world so restlessly? God is a precious treasure. Appreciate him accordingly. For he is your helper at every step. You are nothing without him. Nor do your resources and your schemes amount to anything. Do not follow other people for they have become wholly reliant on material means. Just as a snake devours dirt, they consume the filth of inferior worldly means. They gorge themselves on carrion in the manner of vultures and dogs. They have become estranged from God. They have worshipped men, devoured the flesh of swine, and consumed wine as though it were water. They have become lifeless, for they place all their reliance on material resources and do not seek the help of God. The heavenly soul has escaped their bodies as a pigeon flies from its nest. They are afflicted with the leprosy of material worship, which has consumed their internal organs. Thus, beware of this leprosy. I do not forbid you to employ material means within moderation, only that you do not become slaves to them like other nations, and that you do not forget the God who is the very provider of these means. Had you possessed insight, you would have seen that God is everything and all else is nothing. One cannot so much as stretch or fold one's arms without his will. One who is spiritually dead may laugh at this, but physical death would have been better for him than such ridicule. Beware. Though other nations have progressed far in their worldly designs, do not envy them and seek to follow in their footsteps. Listen and know well that they are wholly unaware and unmindful of the God who calls you to himself. What is their God? Only a helpless mortal. Thus they are languishing in heedlessness. I do not forbid you from the trade and business of the world. Rather, I exhort you not to imitate those who have considered the world to be everything. In all that you do, whether material or religious, continue to supplicate God so that you may be granted strength and ability. Your supplications should not be confined to mere lip service, but you ought to truly believe that every blessing descends from heaven. You will become righteous only when, in every time of need or difficulty, prior to employing any plan, you shut your door and fall down at the threshold of God with your difficulty and supplicate to him so that he may resolve it by his grace. You will then be helped by the Holy Spirit and a path will be opened for you from the unseen. Have mercy on your souls and do not follow those who have completely cut themselves off from God and depend wholly on material means, to the extent that they do not even seek strength from Allah by saying, Insha'Allah. May God open your eyes so that you should realize that He 
is the central beam of all your plans. If this beam should fall, can the rafters continue to support the roof? Indeed not, for they would suddenly fall and would perhaps even cause a loss of life. In the same way, your plans cannot succeed without the help of God. If you do not seek His assistance and do not make it your rule to seek strength from Him, you will never achieve anything and will die in immense sorrow. Do not wonder why other nations seem to succeed while they are not even aware of the existence of God, who is your perfect and mighty Lord. The answer is that they have been subjected to the trial of the world on account of their abandoning God. At times, he opens the doors of the world to a person who forsakes him and seeks the joys and pleasures of the world and runs after its riches in order to try him. Such a one is wholly bereft and deprived in respect of religion. In the end, he dies with his mind devoted wholly to the world and is cast into an eternal hell. At other times, the trial of God is such that a person is deprived of this world as well. But this latter kind of trial is not as dangerous as the former. For the one who is subjected to the former is more arrogant. In any case, both these groups are described as those who have incurred the wrath of God. God is the fountainhead of true prosperity. How can people attain true prosperity if they are unaware of the ever-living and all-sustaining God and are ignorant and heedless of Him and even turn away from Him? Blessed is one who understands this secret and ruined is one who does not. Similarly, do not follow the philosophers of this world and do not be overawed by them, for they only pursue follies. True philosophy is that which God has taught you in his word. Those who are in love with secular philosophy are in ruin, and truly successful are those who have sought true knowledge and philosophy in the book of God. Why do you follow the paths of foolishness? Will you teach God that which he does not know? Do you hasten to follow the blind so that they should guide you? O oh, foolish ones, how will he who is himself blind guide you? True philosophy is, in reality, acquired through the Holy Spirit, as has been promised. Through it, you will be carried to the acquisition of pure knowledge, to which others have no access. Ultimately, you will obtain such knowledge by sincerely seeking it. Then will you come to know that this is the very knowledge which revitalizes and revives the heart and guides you to the pinnacle of certainty. How is it possible to receive pure nourishment from he who feeds upon carrion? How can he who is blind help you see? All pure wisdom descends from heaven. What then do you seek from the people of this world? Those whose souls ascend to heaven are the true heirs of wisdom. He who is not satisfied himself cannot bestow satisfaction upon you. But first, purity of heart is required. Sincerity and purity are needed, after which everything will be bestowed upon you. Do not think that God's revelation is a thing of the past and that the Holy Spirit can no longer descend as it did so in previous times. Footnote 
The Holy Quran has perfected the law of God, but this has not brought an end to revelation, for it is the life of a true religion. Any religion which is devoid of ongoing divine revelation is dead and forsaken by God. End footnote. I tell you truthfully that all doors may close, but the one from which the Holy Spirit descends never shuts. Open the doors of your hearts so that the Holy Spirit may enter it. By closing the window from which the ray of light enters, you distance yourself from this sun of your own accord. Unenlightened ones, come forth and open this window so that the sun might itself enter you. God has not closed the paths of his worldly blessings in this age, rather he has increased them. Do you then think that the parts of the blessings of heaven, which you sorely need at this time, have been closed by him? Most certainly not. Rather, this door is wide open. In Surah Fatiha, God has taught that the door to every single blessing of the past has been opened for you. Why then do you refuse to accept them? Thirst for this fountain and water will spring forth itself. Weep for these blessings in the way a child wails for the milk of its mother. Then will milk be given to you. Become worthy of compassion so that you may be shown mercy. Be restless so that you may be put to ease. Be ceaseless in your fervent entreaties so that a hand may come to your aid. The path of God is difficult but it is made easy for those who throw themselves into this deep abyss without fear for their lives. In their hearts, they choose fire for themselves and decide to set themselves ablaze for the sake of their beloved. They cast themselves in fire only to discover that it is paradise. This is what God has said, وَإِمْ مِنْكُمْ إِلَّا وَارِدُهَا كَانَ عَلَىٰ رَبِّكَ حَتْمًا مَقْدِيًا that is, O ye who do evil, and O ye who do good, there is none from among you who shall not pass through the fire of hell. But he who throws himself into this fire for the sake of God will be saved, and he who throws himself into this fire for the sake of their inner self, which incites to evil, are consumed by it. So blessed are those who wage war with their inner selves for the sake of God, and wretched are those who war with God for the sake of their own souls, and act against His will. He who ignores the will of God for the sake of his inner self will never enter heaven. Strive hard so that not even a single dot or iota of the Holy Quran may testify against you and cause you to be punished. For even the smallest particle of evil is punishable. Time is short and there is no telling how long one shall live. Make haste, for twilight will soon descend. Consider over and over what you shall present before God, lest it be deemed so inadequate that it is no more than waste, no more than a foul and defiled offering unfit for presentation before the royal court. I have heard that some among you completely reject the Hadith. Those who hold this opinion are grossly mistaken. I have never taught such a doctrine. 
On the contrary, it is my belief that there are three components which God has bestowed on you for your guidance. First and foremost is the Qur'an, which elaborates on the oneness, glory and greatness of God and resolves disputes between the Jews and Christians. Footnote The second means of guidance is the Sunnah, that is, the impeccable example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which was manifested through his deeds and actions. For example, he performed the prayer and taught how it should be offered. Then he demonstrated how to observe the fast through his own example. Thus, the sunnah is the action of the Prophet which gave physical expression to the word of God. This is termed as the sunnah. The third means of guidance are the hadiths, that is, those sayings of the Holy Prophet which were collected after his demise. The status of the hadith ranks below the Qur'an and sunnah, for many hadiths are based on conjecture, but those are hadith that are supported by the sunnah ought to be considered authentic. End footnote. For example, it settles the difference and misconception of whether or not Jesus, son of Mary, died an accursed death on the cross, and whether he was ever spiritually exalted thereafter as all other prophets were. Further, the Qur'an forbids the worship of anything besides God, whether man, beast, moon, sun, star, material provisions or one's own ego. So beware and do not take a single step contrary to the teaching of God and the guidance of the Qur'an. I tell you truly that anyone who disregards even a small injunction of the 700 commandments of the Qur'an shuts upon himself the door of salvation. The ways of true and perfect salvation have been opened by the Qur'an and all else is its reflection. Therefore study the Qur'an with deep contemplation and hold it very dear. Love it more than anything else. God has said to me, Al-Khairu Kulluhu Fil Qur'an Meaning, all good is contained in the Qur'an. This is the truth. Pity those who favor anything besides it. The fountainhead of all your prosperity and salvation lies in the Qur'an. There is no religious need of yours which is not fulfilled by it. On the day of judgment, the Qur'an will confirm or deny your faith. There is no other book beneath heaven besides the Qur'an which can directly guide you. God has been most beneficent towards you in that He has bestowed upon you a book like the Qur'an. I tell you truly that if the book which has been recited to you was recited to the Christians, they would not have perished. If this favor and guidance which has been bestowed upon you had been granted to the Jews in place of the Torah, some of their sects would not have denied the day of judgment. Therefore appreciate this favor that has been bestowed upon you. It is a most precious favor. It is a great wealth. If the Qur'an had not been revealed, the whole world would have been nothing more than a filthy, half-formed lump of flesh. The Qur'an is a book, in contrast with which all other guidance amounts to nothing. The Gospel was revealed by the Holy Spirit, who appeared in the form of a pigeon, 
a creature so weak and frail that it is preyed on by cats. Thus the Christians day by day sank into a pit of weakness until no trace of spirituality could be found in them. The entire foundation of their faith rests on a pigeon. In contrast, the Holy Spirit of the Qur'an appeared in such a magnificent form that it filled the entire earth and heaven with its being. How can the pigeon compare with this grand manifestation mentioned in the Holy Qur'an? The Qur'an can purify a person within a week as long as it is followed in letter and spirit. The Qur'an can make you like the prophets so long as you do not flee from it yourself. Which other scripture besides the Qur'an gives hope to its readers from the very outset and teaches the prayer اِهْدِنَ السِّرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ سِرَاطَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ That is, guide us on the path of those blessings which the people of the past were guided on, the prophets, the messengers, the truthful Siddiqeen, the martyrs Shuhada, and the righteous Salihin. So take courage and do not reject the invitation of the Qur'an, for it desires to bestow upon you such blessings as were given to those before. Has he not bestowed upon you the land of the children of Israel and their Beit Magdis, which to this day remains in your possession? As for those who waver in their belief and are weak-spirited, do you believe that God has made you the physical heirs to the lands of the Israelites, yet He was unable to make you their spiritual successors? In truth, God intends to bless you with greater favor than them. God has made you inherit their spiritual and material wealth. However, no other will be your heir until doomsday dawns. God shall never deprive you of the blessings of revelation and divine inspiration, converse and discourse. He will complete upon you all those blessings He has bestowed on the people of the past. However, I call to witness God and His angels that he who insolently forges a lie against God and falsely claims to be the recipient of divine revelation and wrongly says that he has been blessed with divine discourse, will be destroyed. For such a person speaks untruth about his Creator and acts deceptively. He demonstrates manifest temerity and impudence. So be cautious in this respect. Cursed are those who fabricate false dreams and wrongly claim to be recipients of divine discourse. For by doing so, in their hearts they think that God does not exist. However, the punishment of God will forcefully seize them and their days of misfortune will see no end. So strive in the way of truth, piety, righteousness and progress in the personal love of God and view this as the chief objective of your life. Then, in accordance with His will, God shall bless whomsoever He pleases from among you with His discourse. But you should not wish for such things, lest a wave of satanic influence overtakes you due to selfish desire. Many are destroyed in this way. So render service and immerse yourself in worship. All your efforts should be expended in following all the commandments of God and to progress in certainty. 
You ought to do this for the sake of salvation, not for the ostentatious display of revelation. There are many pure commandments in the Holy Qur'an, one of them being to shun all forms of idolatry, as an idolater remains deprived of the fountain of salvation. And do not tell lies, for lying too is a form of idolatry. Unlike the gospel, which forbids one to look covetously and lustfully at women who are not mahram, but permits it otherwise, the Qur'an instructs against glancing at women under any circumstances, be it covetously or with pure intentions, because one is liable to stumble on this account. In fact, your eyes should always be lowered when you confront a non-mahram. You should not be aware of the physical form of a woman except through an obscured sight, in the way a person's vision is clouded in the early stages of cataract. Unlike the Gospel, the Qur'an does not permit its followers to drink alcohol, so long as they are not intoxicated by it. Rather, it forbids its consumption completely. Otherwise, you would be lost from the path that leads to God and His converse. Nor would God cleanse such a person of their impurities. The Qur'an says that such things are the invention of Satan and you should guard yourselves against them. Unlike the Gospel, the Qur'an does not only forbid you from being angry with your brothers without due reason, Rather, it instructs you not only to suppress your own anger, but to act upon Tawaso bil marhama. Footnote and exhort one another to mercy. Surah Al Balad, chapter 90, verse 18. End footnote. Not only should you have mercy on others, but advise your brothers to do the same. Unlike the Gospel, the Qur'an does not instruct you to forbear with all your wife's improprieties, except in the case of adultery, nor does it forbid divorce. Instead, it says, Footnote Good things are for good men. Surah An-Nur, chapter 24, verse 27. End footnote In other words, the Qur'an does not desire for the impure to remain with the pure. Though your wife may not be adulterous, if she casts lustful glances at others and embraces them, or is guilty of such actions which verge on infidelity, though she has not yet committed the act of adultery, or if she reveals her nakedness, if she is idolatrous and mischievous, and if she is averse to the holy God in whom you believe, then, if she does not change her ways, you are free to divorce her. For her mode of life has already estranged her from you. She is no longer a part of you. Under such circumstances, it would not be lawful for you to shamelessly remain with your wife, for she is no longer a part of your body, but is instead a foul and rotten limb which ought to be amputated. Let it not be the case that she diseases your other limbs as well, which then causes your death. Again, the Qur'an, unlike the Gospel, does not completely prohibit you from taking oaths. Rather, it prohibits meaningless oaths. For on certain occasions, oaths are a way to bring about a judgment. God does not desire that any form of testimony be prevented. Otherwise, His wisdom would be brought into question. 
It is only natural that when no one is available to testify in a dispute, an oath in the name of God becomes necessary because it calls upon God as a witness. And unlike the Gospel, the Qur'an does not prohibit you from resisting an oppressor in all circumstances. Rather, it says, جَزَاءُ سَيِّئَةٍ سَيِّئَةٌ مِثْلُهَا فَمَنْ عَفَا وَأَسْلَحَا فَأَجْرُهُ عَلَى اللَّهِ Surah Ashura, chapter 42, verse 41. That is, the recompense of any injury is an injury the like thereof. But if a person shows forgiveness and pardons another person's wrongdoing, and their clemency results in reform instead of further transgression, then God is pleased with such a person, and will reward him accordingly. Thus, in light of the Qur'an, neither is punishment praiseworthy in all cases, nor is forgiveness commendable in all circumstances. Rather, it encourages the ability to judge circumstances appropriately. Any retribution or forgiveness ought to be administered in proper accordance with the circumstances and with wisdom, not arbitrarily. This is the true import of the Qur'an. And unlike the Gospel, the Qur'an does not encourage you to love your enemies. Rather, it teaches you to dissolve your personal enmities and show compassion to everyone. But those who oppose God, your Messenger and the Book of Allah are certainly your enemies. However, even then, you ought not to exclude them from your prayers and supplications. Oppose their actions, not their persons, and seek to rectify their deeds. For God says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَالْإِحْسَانِ وَإِطَّاءِ ذِي الْقُرْبَى Surah An-Nahl, chapter 16, verse 91 That is, God desires of you no more than that you deal equitably with all people and show kindness even to those who have not done you any good. More importantly, you ought to love God's creation as if it were your kith and kin in the same manner that mothers treat their children. In acts of goodness there resides a concealed element of vanity, and every so often people tend to boast of their favours to others. But such a person who performs goodness out of spontaneous desire in the likeness of a mother can never be concerned for vanity. Thus the highest level of virtue originates from one's natural yearning, like that of a mother. Moreover, this verse not only relates to God's creation but also to God Himself. Justice, adil, towards God means to remember His blessings and show obedience to Him. Goodness, ihsan, towards God means to be firmly convinced of His existence as though one can see Him. And itai dhil qurba, to give like the giving of kindred before God, can be defined as worship that is not adulterated by the greed of paradise or the fear of hell. For even if it was supposed that neither paradise nor hell existed, this would not affect your zeal, love and obedience towards him. The Gospel states that you should seek blessings for those who curse you. However, the Qur'an teaches that you should do nothing of your own ego. Rather, acquire an edict from your heart the abode of divine manifestations, on how to govern your behavior toward such persons. 
If God instills in your heart that the one who curses you is worthy of compassion and is not cursed by heaven, curse them not. Thus, you will not stand in opposition to God. But if your conscience does not exonerate them and it is instilled in your heart that they are cursed by heaven, do not seek blessings for them. None of the prophets sought blessings for Satan, nor did they seek to liberate him from his curse. However, do not act rashly in cursing another, for many an ill thought is steeped in falsehood, and many a curse recoils on the curser. Mind your every step, and deliberate over your actions, and seek assistance from God, for you are blind. Or else you might consider a just person to be a tyrant, or one who is truthful to be a liar, and thereby displease God. In this way, all your good deeds will be wasted. Similarly, the gospel instructs that you should not perform good deeds so that they should be seen by others, but the Qur'an admonishes against concealing all your actions from others. Instead, when wisdom dictates, perform certain actions secretly when you deem it better for your soul and display certain actions when you believe they will benefit others in general. Thus, you will have two rewards, and as a result of your actions, those weaker people who find it difficult to muster the courage to commit good acts might be inspired to follow your example. God himself has elaborated on the wisdom of this teaching in his word by saying, Sirram wa alaniya, secretly and openly. Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 275. That is to say, do good works both secretly and openly. This means that not only should one counsel others verbally, but encourage by example as well. Mere words are not always adequate in every situation. One's practical example often has a greater impact on others. Similarly, the gospel teaches its followers to supplicate in seclusion, but the Qur'an instructs you not to pray in seclusion on all occasions. At times you ought to openly pray before others, in the company of your brethren, for if any of your entreaties are accepted, they might serve to increase the faith of the gathering at large and cause others to be inclined towards prayer. Similarly, the Gospel directs us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever. Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 to 13. Contrary to this, the Qur'an says that the earth is not empty of God's holiness, for it is proclaimed not only in heaven, but also on earth, as it is said, وَإِمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ إِلَّا يُسَبِّهُ بِحَمْدِهِ يُسَبِّهُ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ Surah Bani Israel, chapter 17, verse 45 Surah Al-Jumah, chapter 62, verse 2 That is, every particle of heaven and earth glorifies and proclaims the holiness of God, and everything in them is engaged in His glorification and praise. The mountains remember Him, the rivers remember Him, the trees remember Him, and many righteous people are occupied with His remembrance. 
Anyone who does not remember him with his heart and tongue and does not humble himself before God is humbled by diverse types of torment and chastisement as a result of divine decree. According to the book of God, angels display the highest degree of submission. The same is true of each and every leaf and particle in the earth, as stated in the Holy Quran. Everything is obedient to him. Not even a leaf can fall without God's command. No medicine can heal without his command, nor can any food provide nourishment without it. Everything prostrates itself at the threshold of God with extreme humility and submission and is engrossed in subservience to him. Every particle of the earth, the mountains, every droplet of the rivers, the oceans, every leaf of all the trees and plants, including their every element, every particle of man and beast, recognize God, obey him and extol his praise and glory. That is why Allah the Exalted has said, يُسَبِّحُ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ That is to say, everything in the earth glorifies Allah and proclaims His holiness, as does everything in heaven. Then how can it be said that God is not praised and glorified in the earth? One who possesses complete understanding could never utter such a thing. Among the things of the world, some are made obedient to divine laws and others are subject to divine decree, while others still are bound to the obedience of both. The clouds, wind, fire and earth are all immersed in the obedience and glorification of God. A person who disobeys the commandment of divine law is still bound by the others of divine decree. No one is beyond the realm of these two dominions. Everyone is bound to the heavenly kingdom in some form or other. It is true that on account of the purity and corruption of human hearts, heedlessness and divine remembrance prevail in the earth by turns. But God has not willed for this ebb and flow to occur arbitrarily, but in accordance with divine wisdom. Just as night follows day, Periods of guidance and impiety alternate according to the law and will of God, not by themselves. Despite this, everything hears his voice and extols his holiness. But the gospel says that the earth is empty of the glorification of God. This prayer of the gospel goes on to state that the kingdom of God has not yet arrived on the earth. Due to his dominion not yet having been established on earth, God's will has not been put into effect on the earth as it operates in heaven. The teaching of the Qur'an, however, is altogether contrary to this. The Qur'an clearly states that no thief, murderer, adulterer, disbeliever or anyone who is disobedient, rebellious or an offender can perpetrate any evil upon the earth unless he is permitted from heaven. So how can it be said that the kingdom of heaven does not yet prevail on earth? Does some other opposing force stand in the way of the enforcement of God's command on the earth? Holy is Allah, certainly not. Rather, God himself has established one law for the angels in heaven and another for man on the earth. In his kingdom of heaven, God has given no choice to the angels. Obedience is inherent in their very nature. They are unable to 
to disobey. They are not subject to error or forgetfulness. But human nature has been given the choice to accept or reject. Since this freedom has been conferred from on high, it cannot be said that the presence of a transgressor threatens the kingdom of God. God's kingdom reigns supreme in every respect. Nonetheless, there are two systems of law. One law of divine decree governs the angels in heaven, and this makes it impossible for them to commit sin, while another law of divine decree governs the people of the temporal world and gives them the choice of good and evil from on high. But when a person seeks strength from God for the power to overcome evil, then with the support of the Holy Spirit, he becomes able to conquer his weakness and safeguard himself from committing sin, as is the case with the prophets and the messengers of God. In the case of those who have been guilty of sin, asking for forgiveness can deliver them from the consequences of sin, and they are spared from chastisement. For when light arrives, darkness is dispelled. Those evildoers who do not beg for forgiveness, that is to say, who do not seek strength from God, continue to suffer punishment for their offences. In these days, the plague has also descended upon the earth as a punishment and claims the lives of those who transgress against God. Then how can it be said that the kingdom of God has not been established on earth? Do not be misled by the thought that if the kingdom of God is present on earth, then why do people commit sin? Sins are also subject to the divine law of decrees. Thus, even though such people put themselves outside the law of religion, they cannot escape divine providence, that is to say, the law of divine decree. Then how can it be said that sinners do not bend to the yoke of the divine kingdom? In British India today, theft and murder are rampant, and criminals of every class, such as those who are guilty of adultery, fraud and embezzlement, etc., lurk within the state. But it cannot be said that the British government does not rule over this land. Although the government is still in power, it has deliberately decided against executing a harsh law that would terrorise its subjects, thus making their lives unbearable. For, if the state desired, it could easily throw everyone guilty of crime into prison, thus easily preventing them from criminality, or introduce harsher punishments, thus putting an end to crime. Hence you can appreciate that the current rate at which alcohol is consumed, the increase of prostitution and occurrences of theft and murder are not because the British government does not rule this land, rather the leniency of the government's law has facilitated the proliferation of crime and not because the British government has abdicated its authority. As a matter of fact, it is well within the power of the state to pass a more stringent law and prescribe severer punishments in order to prevent crime, such as the example of a human government, which is of no value in comparison to the kingdom of God. Then how great and powerful is the kingdom of God? If the divine law was to become so oppressive that every adulterer were to be struck by lightning, and every thief were to be afflicted by a disease whereby his hands would become rotten and fall away, and every rebellious one who denies God and his religion were to die of the plague, then before the passing of a week, the whole world would be put on the garment of righteousness and virtue. Thus, the kingdom of God is surely established on earth, 
But heavenly law has bestowed this much freedom that evildoers are not immediately seized with punishment. Nevertheless, punishments are meted out as well. Earthquakes occur, lightning strikes, volcanoes erupt violently and claim thousands of lives, vessels sink, hundreds of lives are lost in railway accidents, storms rage, houses are reduced to rubble, some are bitten by snakes, wild beasts tear apart others, epidemics break out, and not one, but thousands of doors of destruction are open, which God's law of nature has established in order to punish offenders. Then how can it be said that God's kingdom has not been established on earth? There is no doubt that his kingdom definitely reigns supreme. Every wrongdoer has shackles around their wrists and chains around their feet, but divine wisdom has softened its law to a degree that these shackles and chains do not manifest their constraints immediately. However, if man persists in his wrongdoing, they carry him to eternal hell and cast him into such torment in which a wrongdoer neither lives nor dies. In short, there are two systems of law, one which relates to the angels in that they have been created for obedience alone, with their obedience being characteristic of their bright nature. They cannot sin, but they cannot progress in virtue either. The second system of law relates to human beings, in that by their nature they can be guilty of sin, but they can also make progress in piety. Both these natural laws are unchangeable, and as an angel cannot become human, so too a human cannot become an angel. Both these systems of law are unchangeable, they are eternal and immutable. The law that operates in heaven cannot operate on earth, nor can the law that operates on earth be made applicable in respect of angels. If human faults end in repentance, man can become much better than angels, for angels lack the capacity to make progress. Human sins are forgiven through repentance. Divine wisdom leaves some individuals free to commit sin, so that thereby they should become aware of their weakness and may be forgiven through repentance. This is the law which has been prescribed for man, and this is what best accords with man's nature. Error and forgetfulness are characteristics of human nature, not of the angels. How can the law which regulates angels be applied to human beings? It is an error to attribute any weakness to God Almighty. These are merely the consequences of the law that are manifested upon the earth. Is God so weak that his kingdom and power and glory are limited to heaven alone? God forbid. Or is it that some other deity possesses authority over the earth? The Christians should not emphasize that God's kingdom operates only in heaven and has not yet been established on earth, for they hold that heaven is nothing. It is apparent that if heaven, where God's kingdom should operate, is nothing, and God's kingdom has not yet arrived upon earth, this would mean that his kingdom does not rule anywhere. We observe with our own eyes that God's kingdom is in operation on the earth. According to his law, our lives come to an end and our conditions change continuously. We experience hundreds of types of comfort and pain. Thousands of people die by God's command and thousands are born. Prayers are accepted, signs are manifested and the earth produces thousands of varieties of vegetables, fruits and flowers by His command. 
then does all this occur without the kingdom of God? Rather, heavenly bodies seem to follow a charted course at all times, and no apparent change or alteration is perceived in respect of them, which would indicate the existence of a being who brings about change in them. The earth, however, is continuously undergoing thousands of changes, alterations and transformations every day. Tens of millions of people depart this world and tens of millions are born. In every way and respect, the control of a powerful creator is felt. Is there still no kingdom of God on earth? The gospel puts forward no reason why the kingdom of God has not yet arrived on earth. Albeit the Messiah did pray for the deliverance of all through the night in the garden of Gethsemane, and it is recorded in Hebrews 5 verse 7, his supplication was accepted as well. Yet despite this, God did not have the power to deliver him. This, according to the Christians, could possibly serve as an argument to affirm that at the time there was no kingdom of God on earth. But I have experienced greater trials and have been delivered from them. How then can I deny the kingdom of God? Was the case in which I was, at the instance of Martin Clark, charged with conspiracy to murder in the court of Captain Douglas, so that I would be sentenced to death, less grave than the case which was brought by the Jews against Jesus in the court of Pilate? Merely on account of religious differences and not because of any charge of murder? But as God is the sovereign of both heaven and earth, he informed me in advance of this case, in that such a trial was forthcoming, and then he told me that I would be exonerated. The news was announced to hundreds of people in advance, and ultimately I was discharged. It was the kingdom of God which delivered me from this case, which had been brought against me at the joint instance of the Muslims, Hindus and Christians. Thus, not once but many a time I have witnessed the kingdom of God upon earth, and I am compelled to believe in the verse, Lahu mulku samawati wal ard, meaning the kingdom of God is established both upon earth and in heaven. Moreover, I am bound to believe in the verse, Innama amruhu idha arada shay'an an yaqula lahu kun fayakun, that is, all of heaven and earth is obedient to him. When he wills a thing, he says be, and it happens at once. Then God says, Wallahu ghalibun ala amrihi, walakinna akthara nasi la ya'lamun. In other words, God has full power over his will, but most people are unaware of his power and might. So much for the prayer taught in the gospel which causes human beings to despair of the mercy of God and allows Christians to take exception with his providence, beneficence, reward and punishment to the extent that they consider God incapable of helping them in this world until his kingdom should arrive upon the earth. In contrast, the prayer that God has taught the Muslims in the Quran illustrates that God is not powerless on the earth like vanquished rulers. On the contrary, his system of providence, graciousness, mercy, reward and punishment are in operation on earth, and he has the power to help those who worship him and can destroy sinners with his wrath. The prayer is as follows. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin, 
إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين إهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين آمين Translation God alone is worthy of all praise That is to say there is no deficiency in his kingdom None of his excellences await a future state which is deficient today but would be supplemented tomorrow. No aspect of his kingdom is ineffectual. He nourishes all the worlds. He bestows his mercy prior to any endeavor. Further, he also bestows his mercy in response to man's actions. He rewards and punishes at the appointed time. Him alone do we worship and from him alone do we seek help. We pray that he should show us all the paths from which we can earn his bounty and should keep us away from those paths which would incur us his wrath and lead us astray. This prayer which is set out in Surah Fatiha is in clear contrast to the prayer taught in the gospel which rejects the present kingdom of God as having been established on earth. Thus according to the gospel neither God's providence nor his graciousness nor his mercy nor his power to reward and punish is in operation on earth because god's kingdom has yet to be established on earth surah fatiha however indicates that god's kingdom is present on earth and this is why the surah fully illustrates all the requisites of kingship it is obvious that a king should possess the following qualities he should possess the ability to nourish the people In Surah Fatiha this quality is alluded to with the words Rabbul Alamin the Lord of all the worlds The second quality of a king should be that he should arrange for all the necessities that are required for the sustenance of his subjects out of his kingly mercy and not in return for any service This quality is affirmed in God by referring to him as Ar-Rahman the gracious The third quality which a king should possess is that he should appropriately help his subjects towards the achievement of that which they cannot attain by their own efforts. The surah affirms this quality by the use of the word ar-rahim, the merciful. The fourth quality that a king should possess is that he should have the power to dispense reward and punishment so that social conditions should not be disturbed. This quality is affirmed in God by describing him as Maliki Yawmiddin, master of the day of judgment. In short, the aforementioned surah presents all those essentials of kingship which prove that God's kingdom and kingly control are in operation on earth. As such, God's rububiyat, providence, is present. His rahmaniyat, graciousness, is present. His rahimiyat mercy is present his ongoing succor and punishment are present indeed all the prerequisites of kingship are found to exist on earth in relation to god not a single particle is beyond his authority every kind of recompense and each and every form of mercy rests in his hand on the other hand The gospel teaches that the kingdom of God has not yet been established among us and that we should pray for its future establishment. In other words, at present, their God is not the master and king of the earth. Thus, how can one invest any hope in such a God? 
Listen and understand that true cognizance is to know that every particle of the earth is as much under the control of God as every particle of heaven is within his kingdom. Both heaven and earth display a grand manifestation. As a matter of fact, the manifestation of heaven is a matter of faith. The average person has neither ascended to heaven nor witnessed this manifestation, but the manifestation of God's kingdom upon earth is clearly visible to everyone's eyes. Footnote The verse Wahamalahal insan also establishes that only human beings are capable of true obedience to God, for they are able to elevate their obedience to a state of love and affection. They take upon themselves thousands of trials and prove that God's kingdom reigns on earth. How can the angels render the kind of obedience that is coupled with anguish of heart? End footnote. Every human being, however wealthy he might be, must ultimately drink from the goblet of death, contrary to his desire. Observe, therefore, how the manifestation of the command of this true king is visible upon the earth. For when his commandment comes, no one can ward off their death for even a second. When a person is afflicted with a vile and mortal illness, no medical practitioner or physician is able to cure it. Reflect, therefore, what a manifestation of God's kingdom can be seen on earth, in that his command cannot be rejected. How then can it be said that the kingdom of God is yet to be established on earth and will arrive at some time in the future? Reflect, therefore, that in this age, God's heavenly commandment has shaken the earth with the plague, so that this may serve as a sign for his promised Messiah. Who then can remove it without God's will? How can we assert that God's kingdom has not been established on earth? An evildoer dwells on God's earth like a captive and seeks to evade his death, but God's true kingdom brings about his end, and the angel of death ultimately seizes such a person. How then can it be suggested that the kingdom of God is yet to be established on earth? Take heed! Every day, millions of people die on earth in a moment by God's command, and millions more are born in accordance with His will. Millions of underprivileged persons are made wealthy by His command, and millions of the wealthy become poor. Then how can it be said that God's kingdom has not yet been established on earth? Heaven is inhabited by the angels alone, but on earth there are both men and angels who are the agents of God and servants of his kingdom. They guard the various enterprises of man and are constant in their obedience to God and send their reports to him. Then how can it be said that the kingdom of God is yet to be established on earth? As a matter of fact, God has been recognized with most clarity by his earthly kingdom, for everyone imagines that the secret of heaven is hidden and cannot be witnessed. And so, in the present age, most Christians and their philosophers have rejected even the existence of heaven, on which the Gospels base the whole kingdom of God. The earth, however, is actually a temporal abode where thousands of divine decrees are manifested. This enables us to understand that all this change, transformation, birth and death occurs by the command of an extraordinary master. Then how can it be said that the kingdom of God has not yet been established on earth? 
Such a teaching is most inappropriate in an age where the Christians have vigorously denied the existence of the heavens. For this prayer of the gospel readily admits that the kingdom of God has not yet been established on earth, whilst on the other hand, all Christian scholars have, on the basis of modern study, concluded in their heart of hearts that heaven is of no importance and does not exist. As a result of this, God is left with neither his kingdom on earth nor in heaven. The Christians reject their heavens while their gospel denies the earthly kingdom of God. Now according to the Christians, God neither holds authority over the kingdom of this world nor over that of heaven. In Surah Fatiha, however, our God who is the Lord of might and glory has specified neither heaven nor earth and has thus disclosed to us the reality by saying that he is Rabbul Alameen, the Lord of all the worlds. That is to say, wherever habitations or creatures of any kind exist, whether bodies or souls, God is the creator and sustainer of all. Footnote The compound Rabbul Alameen is such a complete term that even if it was discovered that other habitats existed within the celestial bodies elsewhere, they too would be encompassed by this. End footnote.